Welcome back to Wavecast, the official podcast of the Marine Institute of Memorial University. I'm your host, Eugenie, and in honor of Memorial University's Research Week this week, in this episode, we're learning all about how harp seals and right whales are shaping the fishing industry off of the Newfoundland coast. Our first guest is Dr. Tyler Eddy, who is a research scientist in the Center for Fisheries Ecosystems Research. Tyler and his team are using ecosystem models to better understand the role of harp seals in Newfoundland waters and really figure out whether they are in fact impacting the recovering cod populations. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about your SEAL project? Yeah. So last year, DFO put out a funding call um, looking for SEAL science. And specifically, one of the um, priority areas for research was looking at the ecosystem role of harp seals in Newfoundland and Labrador. So that kind of spawned um, the idea for the project. I wrote a proposal. I did a bit of research trying to understand what work has been done in the region to to address this question. And there has been a bit of work done. Um, And then uh, in the spring, we found out we were successful. And so um, since then, I've recruited a master's student to work on the project as part of her master's thesis research. And uh, a postdoc who just arrived from France, who will be working on the project for the next two years. Okay, so what is it like the, the the problem that you're trying to address with this project? So the big question here in the region is, um, are seals the cause of everything that's wrong in fishery? Uh, in general terms, seal populations have been growing since historic overexploitation, and this has happened during a time when a lot of fish stocks have collapsed. So some of the hypotheses that you know fishermen in the region have put forward is that you know seals are one of the main reasons why we haven't seen recovery of some of the fish that um, used to be in high abundance, such as cod and other ground fish species, for example. Um, so there's been some work at DFO that's um, been done to try to understand the role that seals play within ecosystems and how much they consume in terms of fish compared to uh, fisheries for the same species. And most of their conclusions have suggested that seals are not really having a a strong impact or any impact Mm -hmm. on those populations or negatively affecting the fisheries. So there's a bit of a disagreement between the fishing industry and um, DFO scientists about this issue. And it's, you know, quite controversial. There's a lot of history with the sealers in the region being tarnished by Greenpeace and other international organizations. So there's kind of a lot of bad blood um, around the topic in general, and uh, this disagreement about what actual impact seals do have in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're trying to uh, address. So one of the things that I had read before was that there's been like a couple different hypotheses about what's happening is that either seals are feeding off of herring, which is the prey for Atlantic cod, but then also I've heard that seals are also preying on Atlantic cod themselves. So which one is it? Well, that's one of the difficulty in understanding the impact that seals have is that they're quite generalist in their diet. So depending on what's available, their diet can change quite a bit. Um, so when capelin used to be in high abundance, which was pre-cod collapse, and you know capelin collapsed first, and then cod collapsed, and I think you know there's it's been shown that there's relationship there. During those periods, the consumption of capelin by seals was a lot higher. So when uh, cod collapsed, they were forced to feed on other. Um, prey sources such as herring or shrimp. And also we know that their uh, diet changes quite a bit whether or not they're foraging inshore or they're foraging offshore. Mm -hmm. And we also know their diet changes seasonally. So there's a huge amount of variability in terms of what they can eat. And then also there's a lot of variability through space and time. And unfortunately, most of our observations of seal 
um, diet happen on the inshore. So we don't have a great idea of what they're doing when they're offshore. Mm. So what kind of um, like methods and things are you using to answer your questions? Do you have like stomach content data, any sort of like meta barcoding data in stomach contents or, or what are you looking at? So we have a bit of a hodgepodge. It's mostly what uh, DFO has been collecting and doing over the years. So we do have um, stomach content data, which is mostly um, species occurrence uh, through time. So we have a pretty good time series of uh, what's been found in the stomachs. But again, that's biased towards um, seals that are foraging inshore and not offshore. Mm. We do have a couple snapshots of um, stable isotope and fatty acid analyses, which give you more of an integrated picture of where they're feeding in the food chain and not just, you know, their last meal that they ate, which is typically what you find in stomach contents. Um, so basically we have a, a bit of a range of data types, but mostly representing the inshore and mostly representing stomach content analyses that have been undertaken by DFO. So we're using these observations and we're putting them into ecosystem models that haven't been used to answer this question so far. Mm -hmm. So basically we're trying to integrate the existing data um, into ecosystem type approaches uh, and use different types of models that haven't been used to, to look at the same question. So it's basically just a food web. So it's who eats who in the zoo, basically. Um, so who we, eats who in the zoo? <laughs> <laughs> so we try to figure out uh, what's in the ecosystem, how much is there. So biomass is the typical kind of unit that we use, the, the weight of or abundance of the organism. DFO goes out and counts all these different things that are in the food web, starting with the phytoplankton and the zooplankton, going up to the small forage fish, such as capelin, uh, herring, and sand plants, as well as the ground fish stocks and the invertebrates. So DFO does all kinds of surveys every year in order to you know take account of what's in the system. And so basically um, what we try to do is come up with uh, a representation of that food web of who's eating who through stomach contents or through other analyses. And then we have to try to come up with an accounting system to balance the amount of energy that's required for each species based on their consumption rates and their production rates in order to say, okay, we have enough food to feed um, the capelin. We have enough food to feed the cod. Um, for example, if we don't have enough food in the system to feed the harp seals based on our assumption. We have to go back to our model and kind of reparameterize or rebalance how the food web has been represented in order to make sure that there's enough food to sustain the ecosystem as we observe it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the basic idea. It's an accounting system of energy to allow for the biomass that's observed to exist. So this is a lot of what ecosystem modeling is. It's a kind of a data integration and data synthesis exercise. Mm -hmm. And you learn a lot about the system by trying to understand, you know, how the energy is flowing through these pathways. So yeah, it is a two-year project. We have a, a master's student working on this for two years and a postdoc working on this for two years. It's our hope to publish some scientific papers that will directly address these questions. And um, the tools that we use, the ecosystem models, um, will be made publicly available. So if DFO scientists wanted to repeat the methodology or do it with updated data, that would be possible. It's also something that I, I think, you know, we will continue to work on too as, uh, as the story unfolds, because it will probably open up new research questions. I would say that we have a very collaborative relationship with DFO. We're working with the, the SEAL scientists on this project. Um, we work with their ecosystem scientists on a regular basis. So we, we always are in, you know, dialogue and conversation with them and seeking their feedback because, you know, they've been working on this system for a long time and they have 
hundreds of scientists over there, and they're the ones who are actually going out and making these observations and collecting the data. It's a collaborative engagement, and hopefully, you know, we can do some science that might be useful, and they might learn something, and vice versa. So it's kind of a it's a two way relationship. Yeah. So I mean, there are a lot of Fisher's observations, and I think that fuels a lot of the dialogue in terms of you know the impact that harp seals are having. They're very smart creatures. So they, um, you know, they've been known to mess around with fishing gear, depending on what type of gear you're using, they get tangled up in nets. Um, fishers, if they do, you know, open up their stomach, oftentimes there's videos on Facebook of just, you know, lots of cod like rolling out of the stomach. And, and so, you know, those observations are important. And one of the, um, the other projects that was funded by DFO under this seal uh, science funding call was a project by FFAW where they're actually collecting observations by fishers through an online uh, website. So that's, mm, you know, okay. one aspect of this whole, you know, seal science project. But, you know, what it comes down to and what we need to think about as scientists is how representative are individual observations of general behavior and general patterns. Mm -hmm. So we know that seals are quite variable in their diet. We know that they um, eat different things when they're near shore and offshore. And, you know, there's five to seven million of them. So one observation of one seal is, it's not, uh, it's not that it doesn't uh, give you some idea of what's happening, but in general, we're trying to understand what's happening with the whole population on uh, an ecosystem scale. One thing that's really cool about all of us in the building is that we all share this common interest with the ocean. How did you get into marine science? So I didn't want to be a marine biologist when I was a kid, which is an unpopular opinion. Most people, when they find out that I'm a marine biologist, that oh, I wanted to be when I was a kid too. Yeah. And I was like, well, I wasn't that kid. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then I realized I don't like hospitals or needles. <laughs> oh, yeah, same. Yeah. Um, I think my parents also wanted me to be a doctor. That may have had something to do with it. Uh, but I spent a summer in northern Ontario when I was 18 uh, tree planting. So that's something I learned about in my first year of undergrad at Dalhousie. I met a friend and they had been tree planting the summer before. It's a place, you know, you can go out, experience the wilds of Canada, have this wilderness experience, make, you know, bucket loads of money, depending on how many trees you plant. And also get out of your parents' house for the summer, which mm -hmm. <laughs> for me as an 18-year-old was important at that time. Uh, and so spending a summer in northern Ontario, I realized how much I missed the ocean. And everyone there kept saying, oh, we have all these beautiful lakes. But for me, it didn't scratch the itch. So I went back to my second year of my undergrad and changed to marine biology, figured it would keep me close to the ocean. And it was, you know, after that, I, I sort of realized, you know, when you spend time away from where you grew up, it makes you realize how much you miss it and what you love about it. And so growing up in like rural Nova Scotia, um, from a fishing family, surrounded by people fishing and it, it being so much a part of the culture and the heritage, um, I think that was really, for me, when I realized how important it was. And then it's just been a passion that uh, it's been fun to explore through science ever since. Thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is Geneviève Peck, who is a master's student in fisheries science and technology. Previously, she did her undergraduate in biomedical sciences, but then through her passion for the ocean and conservation, she ended up in this role. Geneviève and I sat down to talk about how right whales are increasing in numbers in the waters around Newfoundland and how she's getting ahead of these potential new entanglements using whale-safe fishing gear. 
Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the research, so you came from this biomedical background and then you decided that you wanted to go into studying whale safe gear. Uh, so how did you go into the marine field? Like what is it that drew you to it? I think I was drawn to it kind of naturally throughout my degree, um, like choosing courses that had more to do with natural sciences than biomedical biology. Um, but that was really solidified with my undergrad thesis, which I did in uh, recovery and conservation of um, aquatic ecosystems. And from that point on, and from talking to like some of my mentors and people in the field um, that had made a career out of being a researcher, I knew that I wanted to go into conservation. Mm -hmm. So I knew that whatever I was going to do for my master's had to have a big um, conservation aspect. What really drove me to this project when I started like researching the issue, I saw how critical the issue was and how it had like a big part in like protection of um, endangered species and conservation. That's what really drew me to it. Can you tell me a little bit about your research that you're working on? Because we touched a little bit about has to do with whale safe gear, but what is it that you work on on a day to day basis? Yeah. So my project was born out of um, the DFO talking about implementing whale safe fishing gear, specifically low breaking strength fishing gear. Um, at first, they said it was going to be as early as 2023. It was pushed to 2024. And now it's 2024 conditionally. Um, we still don't have too many details about that. But that's what um, that's what my project grew out of. So the goal of my project was to um, assess the suitability of those low breaking strength fishing gear or whale safe gear for our fisheries in Newfoundland and Labrador. So because there's a ton of different fisheries, it's never really been assessed. It's it's kind of a new, it's a new idea. It's a new issue. It's new technology. So there's a lot of research gaps. And the only other research that's being done on this in Newfoundland is also at the Marine Institute, but it's on ropeless technology, which is the best solution to the entanglement issue for marine mammals. However, it's just not ready to be implemented. So we need solutions in between. And that's what my project is dealing with. So on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I've done a couple of um, experiments at sea. My first steps were actually measuring the tension that's going on in our biggest fisheries here in Newfoundland, namely uh, snow crab and lobster. And then using that data and um, using what we know about low breaking strength fishing gear to see what would be suitable for our fisheries, because it's not going to be a blanket solution. It's going to be a case-by-case -case issue. Um, um, so we need to assess that in a case-by-case -case format, so different fisheries. Also, I'm trying to work as closely as possible with harvesters because they're going to be directly affected by this, whether it's like workshop, getting the word out, getting them to try the low-breaking strength fishing gear, getting their feedback, um, all that stuff. And I'm putting all that into a report and working together with the FFAW to get all that to DFO and hopefully have those results used in um Mm -hmm. making decisions. What kind of whales are we talking about? And the fisheries you mentioned, it was a snow crab fishery. So are these like pots and traps on the seafloor? What's the, the big issue? The big issue became highlighted with the unexpected mortality event that started in 2017 with the North Atlantic right whales. Um, that's an event in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, mostly where um, I think it was 12 right whales that died of entanglement and vessel strikes um, in one year. Wow. And that highlighted the um, issue because the North Atlantic right whale is a very critically endangered species. Um, the issue was pre-existing and it doesn't only target North Atlantic right whales. However, because it's such um, an endangered species, it is 
urgent um, because if if nothing happens, they will go extinct. And the issue is for tended fixed gear fisheries. So that means fisheries that are left in the ocean for either 24 hours, 48 hours, or up to like five to seven days to soak, as we call it, or to mm-hmm. fish. And they're, that's why they're non-tended. And the fixed gear means that there are there's something in the water column. So for lobster and snow crab, for example, there are pots um, at the bottom of the ocean and there are down ropes that are attached to buoys. So these ropes are what pose the risk for whales. And our, our fisheries is very different from the ones um, in the rest of Atlantic Canada. So there are like further considerations to be done for our fisheries. Can you touch on why is it so different in Atlantic Canada than than other places? A ton of reasons. Um, you know, Newfoundland fisheries are like a, a cultural thing and they existed for so long and they evolved independently from other fisheries in Atlantic Canada. So we do use smaller traps than um, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, specifically for the snow crab fishery. However, we fish in trawls or fleets. So we have 25 to 100 of these traps all on the same down rope, which makes for like a lot of tension on the down ropes while harvesters are hauling their gear, which would pose um, an issue for low breaking strength fishing gear because obviously it has a low breaking strength. So if that tension is super high when hauling, which it is, then it wouldn't be suitable for fisheries. Um, they're also very deep fisheries compared to uh, lobster, for example, in the rest of Atlantic Canada's is very shallow fishery. And we do have some shallow lobster fisheries, but we have deeper ones and we have very deep snow crab fisheries also compared to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, for example. And that poses an issue for ropeless fishing gear because even though it's ropeless, there has to be a rope that's deployed eventually in that rope needs to be coiled at the bottom of the ocean and coiling 300 fathoms of rope is is definitely a challenge for harvesters so mm-hmm. those are all uh, factors that influence the the implementation of low breaking sink or whale safe fishing gear mm-hmm. basically what this also requires is the support from the fishers like you mentioned do you think that they would be responsive to having these ropes that have this low breaking strength um, so harvesters are incredibly supportive of helping with the project. They like to be involved. And this is not the first modification they've had to make for their gears. Um, and they understand the issue. Or I should say, when they understand the issue, it's easy for them to accommodate and be a part of the research is is what they really want to Obviously, it's not an easy change, um, and there are some technologies out there that are not suitable, and they know that, um, and that that can scare them away if, if you give them um, a technology that is absolutely terrible to use or re- will result in them losing time, losing gear, um, losing profits, or causing ghost gear. It, it's easy to lose their trust, so it, it, that's why it's so important that we do the adequate research before we implement those technologies. I find the main concern that I have is that there's not enough outreach being done, specifically in Newfoundland. We don't really hear about this issue much. Um, Like, I'm in the thick of it. Of course, I'm hearing about it. But the harvesters on the West Coast or even, you know, harvesters that we haven't worked with yet, they're not really sure what's coming. And they don't know that DFO is trying to implement something or they don't know the plans. And of course, we don't either, only DFO does. But I think it's important to prepare them. And one of the things I get a lot from harvesters is, um, well, I've never seen a right whale, right? And 
sure, it's true. We've seen them now the last two years. We've had right whales here in um, Newfoundland. But if, if you're not following the right communications channels, you you wouldn't know. But also it's it's the fact that I know that their food source is moving north because of climate change. And I know that it could be expected that right whales will move north unexpectedly in the next three to five years um, in large numbers because that's what happens in the happened in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and that's what caused the unexpected mortality event. They can't know that, they can't understand that because they don't have the right information. I think it's really important to provide that information to them. Um, Additionally, it's not only a right whale issue. If the right whales do go extinct, the the issue doesn't go away. So it is a problem Mm -hmm. that needs to be fixed urgently for the right whales, but also for the future of all our fisheries. It's important to alter the way that we fish in a permanent way that works for everyone that works for the ecosystem and that works for the harvesters with the harvesters help um, but in order to better cohabitate with with marine species um, so I've been collaborating with the FFAW and we're planning workshops and information sessions in the next year hopefully trying to reach as many harvesters in Newfoundland as we can but specifically ones fishing in the Gulf of St. Lawrence because the whales the North Atlantic right whales are more in the Gulf of St. Lawrence right now so we expect that the implementation will be focused on the Gulf of St. Lawrence first, but also um, we know that we have an opportunity here in Newfoundland and Labrador that the Gulf of St. Lawrence didn't have. They didn't know that the right whales were going to come, so they weren't prepared. And now that the issue is already there, they're trying to solve it. We don't have right whales in high numbers yet, and we don't have them during the fishing season yet. So we have an opportunity to do proper research and prepare accordingly and be ready when they do come here. Ropeless is the best way forward. Eliminating ropes from down ropes from the water column is the best way to prevent entanglement. But in the meantime, how can we mitigate the issues from entanglement? How can we make sure that they don't result in death? It's an issue worldwide. And so the lessons that we learn and the data that we gather will help inform more decisions and will hopefully be applied to other fisheries because obviously marine mammal bycatch is not a local issue. It's a global mm-hmm. issue. So hopefully we can we can help develop technologies and develop methods um, and frameworks to implement worldwide eventually. In the east coast of the U.S., for example, um, around Maine, uh, Cape Cod Bay, there has been successful implementation of whale-safe fishing gear. However, like the reason for that is because their fisheries aren't as complex or intense as ours, so they're they're not as heavy. They don't they're not as as deep. Um, they don't have that much current or tides, etc. Mm-hmm. However, it has been done. They they have worked with harvesters, and harvesters are fully on board now. Um, yes, it's a shallow fishery, but they are able to um, fully continue to fish even with whales in the area because they're using ropeless systems. Um, So yeah, it it has been done and it can be done. Um, It's just we have the opportunity to do it now that the problem isn't so urgent in Newfoundland. What do you Mm -hmm. see for the future of this project? There is one type of gear that we're starting to um, to try out more now. I'm doing workshop um, experiments and we're, we want to do at sea experiments as well. It's a double threshold, low breaking strength fishing gear. So what that means is it's not only tension that causes it to break, but a certain tension that is sustained for a certain amount of time. So 
in theory, that should allow harvesters to haul up their gear without it breaking their ropes. But if a whale does become entangled and puts tension on the rope for a certain amount of time, it would cut the rope and hopefully reduce the chances of serious injuries and um, mortality for the whale. That is probably the technology that I see is most likely to be implemented in the waiting period for ropeless gear to be ready um, for some of our fisheries that are um, heavier or more challenging. I do see ropeless gear being implemented hopefully soon. The biggest issue is, is the cost, of course, um, but it is it is making progress and um, there are a lot of people working on this. So I do hope that the future is ropeless. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining oh, the thank podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Tyler and Genevieve who joined us on today's podcast. If you would like to get in touch with any of the guests or if you have questions for future episodes, you can send them to wavecast.mi.mun.ca. We'll see you next time.